So uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 6, the fall. Not a happy text, a devastating text. I, I have a favorite, I have a favorite uh, podcast. It's called Desert Island Discs. We lived in, in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland for four years, and I got addicted to the BBC in, in a panoply of ways, and one of them uh, was, was through BBC4 Radio. And on BBC4 Radio, this, they have this show called Desert Island Disc. It was recently voted the most popular uh, radio show in the UK of all time. It's been on since, I think, since the, just after the First World War. Um, and in 2006, the interviewer was interviewing Simon Cowell, who most of us know, uh, American Idol. I think he came up with it, produced it. He was on the panel for a long time. He's done a bunch of other things. He's fabulously rich. She said, I've read that you're worth 50 or 60 million. Is that right? I've done well. Somebody said understatement earlier. Uh, I've done well. The host says, how well? How many houses do you have? I've got five or six houses around the world, many cars, most of them convertibles. So are you Simon Cowell, the man who has it all? Is that the brand we're dealing with? No. What haven't you got that you'd like? And he says, I'm always unhappy. I'm always striving for something else. I don't relax. I've tried to and can't. If somebody I know is doing better than me, it makes me really, really unhappy. I like winning. I don't like being in second or third place. Powerful. Here's a guy that has everything the world says we should have that's going to make us happy, that's going to satisfy and fulfill us. And all of his stuff is invisible. He just sees right through it to the stuff that other people have. And there's this big hole inside of him. And he's actually more unhappy probably because he has that stuff. But it's not the stuff. There's not a problem with the stuff. It's, it's him. It's the human condition. It's our brokenness. And it comes from this place right here. Um, Simon Cowell has so many things, but he's looking at the one thing he doesn't have. Because of his brokenness, because of the fall, he is deeply ungrateful. And that's a human problem. We, we, we by our broken nature, not the nature God intended, look past the things that we have that God's provided to the very things that we don't have, and it makes us miserable. And so it all stems from this text that Austin read this morning, and I want to dive in. I want to dive in together. And the first point is um, how ingratitude killed creation. We're just going to dive in verse by verse together. How ingratitude killed creation. The first thing the serpent does, he's crafty. God's created him, he's crafty, but then there's a mystery going on here as to what exactly the serpent is. He's the enemy, he's the accuser. He comes into the garden and he insinuates or suggests in verse one to Eve. He flips the script, if you'll notice, on what God has said. And we've spent the past nine or so weeks in Genesis one and two, so we know, and maybe we've read them if, even if we haven't been here, but we know that God said, um, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But what he says is, has God actually, or has God really said, you may not eat from any tree of the garden? So he takes the fullness of what God gives and he flips it exactly. You can also translate the Hebrew into a non-question. Actually, like he comes in and just says, actually, God has said, you can't eat from any tree. So he knows that Eve's gonna call foul on him because it's so blatantly the reverse 
But what he's trying to do is to get her to enter into conversation and to begin to question God's word. But just notice how he just completely flips the script. It's obviously wrong. His goal is not to win a Bible contest, but to hook Eve into starting to weigh God's word instead of obey God's word. Okay. Um, one, my, probably my favorite commentator, Derek Kidner, says he's smuggling, the serpent is smuggling in the assumption that God's word is subject to what? Our judgment. He's just insinuating and suggesting and smuggling that in and hooking her. Game is on. Game is on. From this point forward, the question is for us as we go through this narrative, will Eve hold to God's word precisely? Will she? Another tactic the serpent uses that we see here is that he erases the wide provision of God's word. He erases the wide provision of God's word. In Genesis 2, 9 and 16, like I said, God said, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, okay? Of every tree. It's an abundant provision. He just skips right over that and goes to, again, flips the script. Uh, Of every tree you may not eat, right? Skips over the provision. Beginning, isn't there yet? We don't see her there yet, but you can almost see the wheels in her head turning, beginning to get her mind off of what God has provided onto what he's withholding, what's not hers, okay? Another tack is that he takes the prohibition which follows the wide provision. What is, and again, in Genesis 2, 16, of every tree you may freely eat, but what? But, there's just one but, this tiny, narrow and we talked about why that's the case, because God's looking for obedience and relationship and trust. But just simply of this one tree, just of this one, don't eat. All the rest are yours. Game on, freedom, go for it. So the serpent takes the prohibition, just this one tree, don't, don't eat of it, and he applies it to everything. Isn't that familiar? Don't we have a tendency to do that? The things God says don't do, we just kind of take them and we go, man, he's just telling me I can't do anything. This is, a, this, this is the oldest trick in the book and it works so well so often. The suggestion here, there's so much insinuation in the suggestion. The suggestion here is that God is not loving. He's mean, he's stingy, he's cruel. It's merely an insinuation. The serpent isn't saying any of these things, but he's planting the seeds and he's letting it grow and he's letting this poisonous weed grow, this, this vine wrap itself around the trunk, and eventually what happens is it squeezes out the life. It squeezes out the life. God's puritanical, he's a prude, he's a spoil sport, he's a cosmic killjoy, we've heard all these things. The world is where all the fun is. God hates fun, he wants you to have zero of it. Sort of the world's caricature of God, and this is what the serpent is starting to, to insinuate here. Now let's move from what the insinuation of the serpent to, to Eve's first mistake as we think about how ingratitude killed creation. Now down to verse two. Um, what Eve does, how does she respond? She says, in response, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What does she do? First thing is she makes a broad word more narrow. God said, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. What does Eve do? What does Eve do? She says, she trains every tree, she leaves out every. We may eat of the trees of the garden. It's this tiny little 
but she, she makes this very wide, every tree more narrow. She removes that, okay? She removes that. And she also changes, you may freely or surely eat, it can be translated either way, to just eat. We may, she just simply says this. God says you may freely eat of every tree. Here's what she says. No, 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 serpent, you're wrong. We may eat, not freely eat. She leaves out freely. It's there in the Hebrew. It's not, it's not, it's not there in the Hebrew. It's gone. This is a good translation. We may eat of the trees. Just two little omissions that narrow God's provision. That narrow God's provision. So she's kind of following the line that the servant wants her to. Um, and this just brings up the fact that the best defense against the attacks of the enemy is a good offense. We've heard that aphorism in sports. It's not just effective in sports, it's effective in life too. The best way to stay sexually pure is to feast, not to, fa- not to fast. Fasting is appropriate and good at times, but it's secondary. The serpent wants us to think it's primary. He wants us to think no is the answer. No is what God wants for you. No, God has a yes for us. The best way to sexual purity is to feast on the living God. He alone will satisfy us. And if we have a spouse, to feast. God says, hey, within this, there is a prohibition there with your spouse alone. But within this relationship, feast. Every tree, freely eat. I promise you it's the way to joy. But what do we do sometimes? We look in our ingratitude and our brokenness at the one thing we can't have, right? So we narrow God's provision. The best defense, though, is a good offense. Look at what God has given us. He is the, he is the author of joy and pleasures are at his right hand forevermore. Ingratitude stems from a narrow view of God's provision. It can be deadly, and here's how deadly we see here. Ingratitude can ruin a perfect creation. That's how powerful ingratitude is. Gratitude is medicine for the soul. Ingratitude is poison. Gratitude is the sign of a healthy heart. If someone is really grateful, it's a barometer. It shows you uh, that, that they are healthy and it creates health around them as well. Um, gratitude is a sign of a healthy heart. Ingratitude is the sign of sickness, of an ailing heart. Covetousness and ingratitude are twins. And what's the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not, yeah, covet. That's right. The 10th commandment is something invisible. So the commands aren't just about outward perfunctory acts. They're about the heart. They're about the heart. And covetousness, as the last commandment said, I care about your heart. And that throws itself over as a blanket, as a canopy over all the other things God desires from you. He desires you to keep them from the heart. He cares about your heart. Don't covet. Because covetousness is ungratefulness. It is ungratefulness. Um, I am not content uh, with grateful for what God has given. I need that that I don't have. I deserve that. Maybe I don't have the job I want. I can focus on uh, the thing I don't have. And what that does is, as I'm locked in on that thing I don't have, that job I don't have, I miss all the other provisions in my life. If I have children, if I have a spouse, if I have food on my table, if I, have, if I live in a still free republic and I have breath in my lungs and I have freedom through, 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 with God in Christ, all these things, and I could go on and on and on. I could filibuster this baby. I could just go for hours and hours and days and days on the things that I ought to be grateful for that I have that I don't deserve, but man, I don't have this job and I'm just locked on it and I'm missing 
Now I'm missing the why provision. So back to the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment as the last command of the Decalogue of the 10 commands, it loops back to the first one. It speaks back to the first one. And then in, in doing that, it says that it's all about this. What is it? It's about the heart, okay? When we are coveting, we are, want, we are making that thing that we're looking at for our happiness. I need this to make me happy. And that is our functional God. And what does the first command say? You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so covetousness is at the root of what destroyed creation. And we can even see that in the Ten Commandments, and it's a twin with ingratitude. Covetousness or ingratitude begin to grow in Eve's heart. She begins to think, you can almost see the wheels turning in her heart and head, God is holding out on me. It's what Satan really dives into next, the serpent, um, who I believe was possessed by the enemy, um, the accuser, Satan himself. Um, Ingratitude opens the door to destruction. It's a, we were talking at a dinner party last night uh, about gateway drugs. Ingratitude is a gateway sin, which is why gratitude and worship are our weapons. Um, They're touted and commanded over and over again in scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. In everything, give thanks. They help us to militate against ingratitude, which is a world destroyer. This is how we fight. Um, Ingratitude can cause us to ignore and endanger losing what we already have. Okay, what we already have. What does Satan, what does the serpent do in Genesis 3, 5? He says, he knows that if you eat of the tree that he's forbidden, what? You shall be like gods or like God. It can be translated in the Hebrew either way, like God or like God's. They already were. They were the only creatures in all of God's good creation that he made in his image. As we spoke about in previous weeks, he breathed his own breath, his own spirit into them and gave them charge over everything, made them alone as his sons and daughters in his image. The serpent promises to Eve what she already has and in following the serpent's word, she loses that thing that she's going after, that she already has, that she's missing because she's looking at what she doesn't have. It's so ironic and sin always is. And that's exactly what the serpent is going for. Okay, so that's her first mistake, to miss the wide provision. Her second mistake though um, is that she took away from God's word. So her first is that she misses the wide provision, but her second is that she, she takes away from God's word. Uh, excuse me, her, excuse me. Her first was that she take, took away from God's word. She missed the provision. Um, but her second is that she adds to it, that she adds to God's word. She, what does she do in that verse I just read? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she leaves out some things. But secondly, what does she do? But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the garden that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall ye touch it lest you die, neither shall you touch it. This does the, set. so God never said that. He, did, he didn't say don't touch the tree. He just said don't eat of it. And she adds that. This does the same thing as taking away from what he said, from the wide provision. She adds to it and it makes God seem stingy and like a spoiled sport and all about cracking your knuckles with his ruler. Okay, so just that slight tweak, the slight omission, the slight addition, this is what the accuser wants us to do and wants her to do. Um, 
What, another thing that it does is it puts the focus on the tree. If you notice that. It puts the focus on the tree. It makes it kind of like a magical thing. Okay, instead of the focus being on God's word, and really, he could have said, don't do any of these things. But because he said it, it puts me in obedient relationship with him, and it creates a trust in a relationship, which is what he's after. And it's about his word. But this makes it about the tree. It's almost magical, like an electric fence. If you touch it, you're going to die. No, God never said that. She's adding to it, and she's making the tree the thing. And that's what we do in our ingratitude, is we make whatever's forbidden the thing. But God's word is the thing, and relationship with him is the thing, and his goodness, and his heart, and his love, and his compassion, and his mercy. But Eve here is focusing more and more on the tree and on what she doesn't have. Um, she also omits uh, surely from surely die, in the day that we eat of it or touch it, we shall die. She doesn't say surely die or die, die in the Hebrew, like God says. She just says, we shall die. It does the same thing. So in other words, if I touch it, I'm gonna drop down dead. I'm just gonna die. But in the day that you eat of it, God said, dying, you shall die. What is he talking about? They don't drop down dead. The process of death starts inside of them because they've been cut off from relationship with the holy God, like a branch from a tree. And all the life in them, it has them live for a long, long time, 900 years. There's so much of the image and the breath of God in them. They stay green for a long time, but the process of death has started already. And it's just a matter of time before total death takes over. Okay, so it makes it, uh, again, sort of a magical thing. If I touch it, I'm going to go down. It's about the tree. No, it's about being severed from relationship with God. And once that happens, you die, body and soul forever. There's no life outside of connection to God. So then, so we see that, um, but then the serpent moves, he makes a strong move um, in verse four or five from insinuation and suggestion to refutation, just bald refutation in verse four. He shows his fangs. What does he say in verse four? He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Man, he can't contain his vitriol. He cannot contain his hatred of the word of God. The serpent is really showing his fangs here. He's been restrained, he's restrained, he's been crafty, he's been cunning, he's been subtle. But here we see his true colors. He hates God's word and he hates God and he hates anything made in God's image, which is Eve and Adam. And misery loves company and he wants to steal and kill and destroy and drag down. And so the way he does, he just says, ah, you won't, he just blatantly contradicts God. You won't surely die. You see his hatred of God's word, which leads to total death. So surely it's God's word and obedience to it and love of the one who gave it that leads to life. And, this, and the serpent knows this. The serpent knows this. Do you notice though something? The serpent said, it's subtle because he's subtle. But in his, he makes a mistake. I, I wish he had caught it, but the Lord in his providence allowed this to unfold and happen. And, but he says, you shall not, what? Surely die. Here's my question. Where did he get that? Eve didn't say it. Eve said, in the day that we eat it or touch of it, we shall die. She got his word wrong in many ways. 
The serpent knows the word better than she does, and he must have heard it from God himself. As God told Adam, he was somewhere, he is smart. He knows God's word. He's been listening, and what he wants is for us to just a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, and then castigate God for who, what he's not letting us do and for how narrow he is and for what he's left out or adding to God's word and making him seem harsher than he is. A serpent knows God's word and he hates it. And we must know it well. Eve's third mistake is that she eats, okay? The shocker. You know, you, every, I've, read it, I've read it so many times, but every time I'm just hoping this time that she doesn't take the fruit and eat. And every time she does. Um, and I just want to say here, there's so much focus on Eve because Eve's, there's focus on Eve in the text, but at the end, men, we're not off the hook. At the end, we see that she gives to her husband also and he eats. He's been there the whole time. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. In future weeks, we'll spend a lot more time on Adam. But the blame falls squarely at his doorstep because he was the one that God gave the word to and he was responsible for transferring it to his wife. And something was lost in translation, in the transmission. And he was standing there the whole time, as Paul tells us later, not deceived. Eve was. He took and ate and said nothing, did not stand between his wife and the serpent in full understanding that what they were doing was blatantly disobeying God. He is more to blame. But that's all I'm gonna say about us. Men, we're not off the hook, okay? We're not off the hook. So Eve's third mistake is that she eats. She relies on her eyes. She sees how good it is and how desirable for all these things. And she's, she's seduced by her eyes and her judgment over and against the Lord and his word. It, in the end, it always comes down to this, friend. I'm speaking to each and every one of you. It always comes down in the end to a binary thing, a choice between what God says and what I say, his judgment, my judgment. And every sin is us going with my judgment, every sin. And often it's our eyes that lead us there, isn't it? This ingratitude, uh, it literally wrecked creation. And my ingratitude doesn't just destroy me. Uh, it, it wreaks havoc in my soul and in my life, but it also, it also spreads out for me and wreaks havoc in all those that have to hear and be around my ingratitude. It's a poison. It's a poisonous weed. It's a poisonous root. Um, and Eve, is, she's looking at this tree and at this fruit, and we do the same thing. It's so, this thing that we see, this, this thing that we're judging, that we're weighing over against God's word as if we ought to be doing that. It's so powerful, it's so appealing, it's so sexy, it's so alluring, it feels so good. It promises life, that one thing that we can't have. It promises life, it promises satisfaction, it promises power. One of my favorite artists, he's a, uh, a folk artist, his name's David Wilcox. Probably zero of you have heard of him. Um, okay, yes, call back, first call back, keep it coming. Dave Wilcox, he has this song and he says, one touch and all my resolutions change. I can say this is no good for me. What? But I'm back for more of the same. We all know that feeling. One touch and hey, what happens? All my resolutions, all my hard-won certainties change. It's powerful. It's so appealing. 
We see that here in this verse with Eve in 3, 6. And we're just, we know we're right there with her. We're hoping against hope. And man, she grabs and eats and gives to her husband. St. Augustine, fourth and fifth century church father, he, he said that we will always in the moment choose what we think will make us most happy. Every time. Every single time. That's why the best defense is a good offense. It's ultimately not about the no. There's a deep yes beneath the deep no. Um, what is the Bible? We're all complicit in this. We've inherited this, but we've all been here. We are all here. Um, is it what I say or what God says? What is the Bible's verdict on humanity, on us? All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. Who will deliver us? Here's my question and the question the scripture gives us. Who will deliver us then? We who are bound by this destroyer of worlds, this ingratitude that wells up from within us, that seduces us. Who will deliver us from this body of death, this ingratitude, this pride, this suspicion, this distrust, these world-wrecking tendencies? They hurt me, they hurt those around me, they corrupt God's good creation. Um, the speed it, again, it astonishes me every time, but the speed with which Eve sees, she's considering the serpent's words, she's weighing God's words and finding them wanting. She sees it, she takes it, and she eats it. There it is. What? And then she gives it to her husband. It's always astonishing the celerity with which the sin that destroys creation happens. And we know what that is and what it feels like, don't we? We do. We're all right there. Derek Kidner again, he says, he's so terse and appropriate. He says, so simple the act, so hard it's undoing. Wow. That so simple the act takes us to right here. The next phrase, so hard it's undoing, casts us from here all the way to Messiah. All the way to this one who would come, which brings us to our second and final point, how ingratitude destroyed the worlds, but point two, how trust remade everything, the worlds and us. God casts, even in the midst of this, in a few verses, he, he gives us this promise in the midst of the hot curse. We'll spend a week or two on it soon. And he says, there, there will be one who will come. I am not wiping the plate clean with you. I'm going to enter into the hot core of your curse and I'm gonna give you a promise. There is one I will send through a woman who will reverse this curse and who will make everything sad come untrue. And so all throughout the Bible, if you're not reading the Old Testament looking ahead, leaning ahead to that one that's gonna come, longing for him. If you're not living your life, leaning into that one that God's going to send that's gonna make your insides right, your relationship with God and others right, you're not living right, you're not reading right. This is what we're waiting for. And this second Adam in the gospel of Matthew and the other three gospels, he comes into the picture, Jesus the Christ, this man the second Adam that Paul calls him. He is also tempted in a variety of ways, but just focusing for a minute or two on the wilderness. At the beginning of his ministry, the Holy Spirit takes him to be tested and tempted, much like Adam and Eve were. 
But this time it's not in the garden. There are a few differences and the differences are always really, really important. It's not in the garden where he may, what? Freely eat, just pig out, have a blast. There are no limitations on how much you can eat of every tree of the garden, just not this one. He's not in a garden paradise and he can't freely eat. Where is he? He's in a howling waste in the south of Judah, in the wilderness, in the Negev. And he's not eating, is he? He's not feasting, is he? He's fasting. He hasn't had water or food, a crumb or a drop for 40 days. He is literally starving. And at this point, the serpent comes to him. The accuser, the enemy of humanity and of God comes to him. And he's not tempted like Eve is once, but three times. But unlike Eve and unlike Adam, he doesn't remain silent. He steps in and he confronts the serpent. And what? He doesn't get God's word wrong. He knows the heart of his father, that it's good, and he clings to his word. He clings to his word, right? Um, And he quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. And he gets it exactly right. Where Adam failed, where Eve failed, where Israel failed, Jesus gets it right. And he does it in our place for us. Um, He was also, like even Adam, tempted in the matter of a tree. He was tempted in the matter of a tree. And that tree was the cross. He was tempted in the wilderness to, what, is, what is one of the temptations that Satan, the accuser, the serpent, gives to him? He says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. He was tempted to grab power the easy way. But he did come to regain all the dominion that we were given and lost in the fall as we severed our, ourselves from relationship with God through disobedience. He came to, gain, to regain all that power, but what was his road to that power? letting everything go, trusting the heart of the Father, even when it didn't make sense to him, okay? Not my will, but yours be done, okay? Even when everything in him, all his eyes and all his touch and his taste and said, it doesn't make sense. He said, I trust you, Father. I trust you, Father. Um, he chose when offered all of that power and dominion in a very easy way, just bow the knee, He shunned it, he used God's word, he clung to it, he spoke it back to the enemy. And then on the cross, he went and he regained the dominion that we lost. The most excruciating, hardest way imaginable. Didn't just die nailed to a torture instrument devised by the Romans, but on that cross as he was hanging there, became, literally became sin mysteriously, ineffably. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us he became the sin of each and every person who would look to him for salvation. He felt what you feel when you sin, that abandonment, that heaviness, that oiliness, that despair, that darkness. He actually incarnated that on the cross and took it upon himself, okay? And he endured the white-hot wrath of God because God is holy and just and can't look on sin as payment for our sin, as our shield. He endured all that, and he 
buried it in the ground. He buried it in the ground. So we were singing earlier about only the blood of Jesus, only the blood of Jesus. And Jesus, as the second Adam, as, the, as a true man and as true God, he makes a way for us to be reconciled to God. He does what Adam and Eve didn't do. He does what Israel didn't do. Um, we think of his blood and we think, yes, he lost his life and endured the death that our disobedience merits in our place so that we could have life. And that's so true. He paid for our sins on the cross, all of them. But that, what that blood also shows is that he gave his life. His blood goes out of him. And that shows that he gave his life for you. So he, he doesn't just take your death upon himself and my death upon himself on the cross. He also gives us his very life, his perfect life. His clinging to the word of God, his obedience to the Father from the heart, his heart, his spirit, his love of God, the peace that, flew, that flowed out from him that is his, he gives to you. Not just taking your death into himself and bearing it and getting rid of your debt completely, which he did, but also giving you his heart, giving you his record, giving you his life. Your salvation hung on every obedience of Christ to his father from the heart, his entire life. If ever he had strayed in his heart from the father, one iota, you and I would be lost. But he did it. He did it. And he rose on the third day as proof. And when he rose on that third day, he didn't stay dead, did he? Which is why I'm preaching now. If he had stayed dead, we wouldn't be here. We'd be hopeless. But he rose on the third day and he rose from the ground just like whom? Who else rose from the ground and was made a living creature? Adam. We've read this. We've preached it. We've seen it. Adam in Genesis 2, God makes him from the ground and brings him up and breathes life into him. This living creature, he comes out of the grave, what? A new human. The same Christ, but now free from sin, having buried all of our debts and having given his record and his life and his obedience to us who, who trust in him and who look to him and not to ourselves. And he rises with the, bread of God, the breath of God in him from the earth as a new prototype of humanity. He took your death, but also he's giving you a completely new type of life that when you look to him, comes inside of you by his spirit and you are going that way too. Something completely new has begun in you in those of us who look to Jesus Christ, and it will never end. And when he comes again, he will finish that work, and we won't even have to strive against sin anymore. He'll get rid of pain. He'll get rid of despair. He'll get rid of cancer and brokenness and even the ability to sin and even that separation that we feel from God and each other and inside of us sometimes that we feel by increments he's changing over the course of our lives. He will finish that, and he will bring us to himself, and we will feast. And this is the gospel. So just a few points very briefly in a couple minutes on how are we to be freed then in sort of summary from this ingratitude because of what Christ has done, this second Adam who did in trusting the Father what Adam and Eve couldn't do and undid. Um, first off, not just by counting our blessings one by one, 
as we're enjoined to do, but that's not gonna be enough. If I just go out of here with a positive attitude, I'm like, I'm just gonna be grateful for the stuff I have. That's not gonna change anything long-term. That's not gonna change anything. So not just by counting our blessings one by one, but by looking to the one whom God has given us in Jesus Christ. Again, what did, we, what did, we, what did I talk about in what the mistakes that Eve made? She overlooked God's wide provision. When you are in the trenches, when you are suffering, and indeed you have suffered, you could be suffering now, you will suffer in this life. When you are feeling slighted by God, abandoned, where are you? Are you mean? Are you stingy? Are you holding out on me? I thought you promised this. What about my four children that I lost? What is the heart of God for you? What is his wide provision? Jesus. What more can he give you than having given you and me his own self and son? Pleased, hey, Isaiah 53, pleased to crush him whom he loved so that he would not be without you any longer, but bring you to himself in love. What more can he give us than that? And what will he not give us in light of Christ? It is all coming, friends. And that's my last point. It's all coming, not in this life necessarily, but we've been given that deposit. We've been given that deposit. We have been given Christ himself. He's given his son for us, okay? Um, Also, he loves you because of Christ. We know, we know that we know that we know that he loves us no matter what. Um, and so we can trust him, even when, his wor- even when it seems like he's holding out on us and he's being mean and stingy and a spoil sport. And why can't I eat from that tree? Why can't I have that? Why do my neighbors have that? Why does she or he have that? Why did I just lose that? Why, is, why am I going through this right now? It's real. But we can look to Christ and know that this is the heart of God for you. He loves you that much. You can trust him. He has your best in mind. Also, we can know that this world is not enough that thing that you're coveting, the stuff that you're ungrateful for that you don't have, it's not, if you have it, it's not gonna fulfill you. It's like, again, it's like that hill that we're climbing up to a mountaintop and we think the next hill is gonna be it. It's never it. It's the, the next hill's never it. It's always like 35 hills away. And the, and the leader's like, it's just this next one. You rotten liar. You know, that thing you're looking at that you think maybe, you're fooling yourself again, maybe this is gonna fulfill me. It's never going to. The world is not enough but he is. I promise you, he is. And this life is just a taste of what's coming, and we have his spirit as a down payment on what is coming in full one day. Um, The world will not open your eyes, but Christ will, and he will fill your heart, and his spirit is a guarantee of of the good things that are coming. Um, All we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. But he was crushed for our iniquities. Okay, he is the answer that we're looking for. Um, He is the heart of God for us. He is the assurance in the midst of all the problems and troubles that we have in this life that God is to be trusted and that God loves us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for these people. Um, Thank you for how much you love them, each one of them. How much, how do we know how much? We know that we know how much when we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, enduring, starving as he is, enduring um, 
the temptations of the serpent in the wilderness successfully, triumphantly for us and then dying on a Roman cross, an instrument of torture for each person in here. This is your heart, Father. This is you saying, I love you this much. Would we trust that word that is Jesus? Would we believe on that word that is Jesus instead of that thing that we cannot have for now at least that we're looking at, Lord? Help us to see the wide provision in Jesus Christ and your huge heart for us. We love you. We bless you. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.